At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, Michael Daniel of the Cyber Threat Alliance joins us to discuss Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 report on global cyber threats. But first, we're taking a look at the cyber elements of uh, the bipartisan infrastructure deal, as well as what cyber element 321. And joining us now, uh, 321. But first, joining us now is retired United States Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, the executive director of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission that uh, was a bipartisan effort to improve the nation's cybersecurity. He is also affiliated with the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Hey, thank you very much, Vago. Uh, Glad to be here again. But first, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, I, uh, Mark, uh, a lot of cyber uh, elements are in the pipeline right now, right? I mean, we have an NDAA process that's ongoing. Obviously, unfortunately, we're going to go to a continuing resolution. But we do have the bipartisan infrastructure measure, uh, more than a trillion uh, dollars that does have some cyber elements to it. And obviously, uh, Democrats continue to negotiate their Build Back Better, President Biden's Build Back Better agenda at about $1.85 trillion that also has some cyber elements uh, to it. Let, let's start with the infrastructure measure. Talk to us a little bit about what is in uh, the measure that the president has signed into law from a cyber, uh, you know, cyber uh, infrastructure, cyber policy standpoint. Hey, thanks, Mario. You're right. The uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act of 2021, the bipartisan infrastructure bill signed by the president on Monday, uh, its advocates have been lauding it, you know, nearly $2 billion in cybersecurity specific spending. And I have to tell you, that's an unusual thing in one of these big omnibus bills to get cybersecurity specific spending. So, you know, that there's there's room for, for optimism there. Look, the White House specifically said it's going to make our infrastructure more resilient to the impacts of climate change and cyber attacks. And for sure, there's some cybersecurity wins in this law. I will say, you know, in a bit, I'll talk about some of the missed opportunities to get our critical infrastructure secure. But I want to start out with some real positives. On the positive side, state and local um, cybersecurity, the state, the, the the cybersecurity of our state and local governments and the utilities they run, about a billion dollars, front-loaded billion dollars, I think, uh, uh, only over four years uh, to get at that. Now we have to be careful here. We have to have good guardrails to make sure this is about cybersecurity and improving cybersecurity and not just IT modernization and new flat screen TVs, right? But if we if we guardrail this right, if it's oversight, if it, the oversight is right by CISA, this will be a billion dollars. It's a first step in addressing some really poorly protected state and lo local infrastructure. We're seeing that in ransomware. We saw it throughout the pandemic with poor performance uh, at that state and local level. So hopefully, that billion dollars would be good. And that's about half the cybersecurity money. Another good chunk was in energy. And I have to tell you, the energy committees in the, in the Senate and House and the Department of Energy do a great job 
getting them to the front of the line. They got to the front of the line, a lot of good money. There's a $250 million program that's just for the cybersecurity of medium, large, um, you know, electrical power companies. And there's a lot of other opportunity in there for money. There's good money in the transport area, you know, to putting cybersecurity into the, um, into the electrification and digitization uh, bills that are in there. So happy to see it, not, not necessarily called a, called away like the previous ones, but cybersecurity built in from the ground up. Hey, a small thing, $21 million for Chris Inglis, the national cyber director. That's going to be really important. Gets him started, allows him to start buying his, you know, 60 to 75 full-time equivalent, uh, you know, non-detail leads, the, the meat of his, uh, you know, of his, uh, of his staff uh, over the next four to five months. Um, there's, there's money in there for, there's some specific uh, money about $500 million spread over R&D, uh, a couple uh, different grant programs for the CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, the kind of our national risk manager. And it gives them some very specific funding money in there. So really good stuff. Now, I do have to say some opportunities were missed. The first thing I'll say is I just want to do a little bit of math. You know, I'm a service nuclear officer, a little bit of math here. So it's $2 billion over Twelve hundred billion, you know, one point two trillion in spending. So two twelve hundreds, you know, a little bit of math there. That's zero point two percent. Look, we—that's a missed opportunity. But still, the fact that it's not zero is the shocker. Um, so there's that, and I, I do think once again, th- there's water was missed. You know, we have got to. Our water infrastructure has, for twenty three years, on a bipartisan uh, basis, not been dealt with. And an excellent opportunity was missed to fund cybersecurity specific things. There is cybersecurity in there, but it's always tied to like, you know, natural disasters, climate change, receding, you know, sea, you know, uh, lowering sea levels and cybersecurity. I got to tell you, we just talked about like three signs of the apocalypse or cybersecurity. What are you going to spend your money on? The three signs of the apocalypse. So I'm afraid we're not going to get cybersecurity spending in there. But I will tell you, overall, this is a win. It's a win for cybersecurity, and we need to take it and then work the small things that weren't right. Um, I, want, I want to get to current legislation and then to build back better. But first, Mark, I want to get your sense on, you, you know, you mentioned a missed opportunity was water. Um, you know, obviously not as much cyber in this as cyber advocates, advocates would have liked to see, right? I mean, positive movement. What are some of the other key elements that you think in another infrastructure measure should be included? Or if you want to tie this to what legislation uh, is in front of Congress right now, right? I mean, you guys had about 25 measures that were accepted from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which is an extraordinary number. Uh, You've told us that a number will be accepted uh, this year, right? The commission was extended by a year. Talk to us about what was not in the infrastructure measure that maybe should have been and what opportunity Congress has to redress some of those shortcomings including uh, in uh, just the standard budgetary process? Yeah, that's a great question because you're right. You got to work all these angles. So first in the NDAA, there's about 14 of our recommendations or versions of them. And it's beautiful when a committee takes our recommendation and twists it into what they need and you get both things achieved. So there's about 14 in the House NDAA. I think there'll be 10 to 12, you know, the Senate NDAA is happening uh, over the next week. Um, There'll be 10 or 12 in there. So we'll get another, you know, 10 to 15 through in the final NDAA. That's going to leave a few for next year, which we'll tackle, you know, which will help, uh, you know, after the commission ends, still help our commissioners tackle. Um, But you mentioned appropriation. That's an important one. You know, the, uh, a place like CISA, really critical. We gave very specific, 47 specific appropriations recommendations across 
20 federal agencies, but the biggest was in CISA. And we can already see from both the House and Senate appropriators, they've increased the Biden administration's already 5% increase, another 15 to 20%. So we're going to see a 20 to 25% increase in CISA's budget so they can do their job. And that was one of our key issues that we weren't resourcing the right federal agencies outside of DOD to tackle their national security responsibilities. So NDAA, and appropriations were on a good track. I, I want to go to the Build Back Better in a, in a minute, but you know, one of the elements, what you know, two billion dollars is a lot of money, as you said, it was a great start in the infrastructure uh, uh, measure, right? But it's two billion out of one point two trillion. Um, ultimately, what are some of the other elements you think that we've got to tackle aside from water? The other infrastructures that worry me beyond water are is is a uh, healthcare provision, whether it's the um, now, medical devices, um, uh, diagnostic services, or your actual treatment inside a hospital, we're starting to see the impact on that. There's a lot of vulnerability in those first two. And uh, there's recently been a ransomware attack on a hospital where uh, the effect of the ransomware attack was to reduce uh, visibility on, uh, on things like health, you know, uh, on, uh, on medical devices. And, it, and uh, right. in the end, uh, a baby died from from that lack of treatment. So there's a lot of vulnerability in the healthcare sector and there needs to be some attention turned on that, both policy attention and I think eventually appropriations. Um, let me ask you about Build Back Better. We've got about a minute left. What are some of the cyber elements of Build Back Better you think is, is worth handling? The Build Back Better is just another opportunity. I'd be surprised if there's less than a billion dollars in cybersecurity in there. I think there'll be a little more than that. Um, some of the stuff I'm seeing is some great stuff on, on education and on K through 12 um, education, specifically uh, making it so that we're providing train the trainer to teachers, to STEM teachers. So they're teaching our kids um, cybersecurity hygiene and, and trying to interest them in the cybersecurity field while they're in middle school and the beginning of high school. That's a daunting task. That's 400,000 teachers we got to get the message out to. And that's going to take some, some amount of money. The amount we're giving right now, 5 million a year was a drop in the bucket. We weren't gonna reach saturation of all the teachers to 95 years. But with the money I'm seeing potentially in, in, in the uh, Build Back Better, we could reach that saturation in four or five years where we've trained the trainers so they train our kids and, uh, and uh, we're, we're in a better position on cybersecurity education. I also see some great work by Congressman Jerry Connolly's team to get more money into the things like the tech modernization fund, but also into the uh, into the coffers of the of the federal agencies that are carrying out our cybersecurity. So a bunch of good opportunities there, Bago. Um, I want to get your take. You know, J.C. Vega joined us. He's the chief information security officer for uh, the cybersecurity firm Devo. And, you know, he joined us and said, look, we're training our folks the wrong way, that if we continue training the way that we're training, we're never going to address these million plus uh, shortfall in, in cyber jobs. I know that you've taken a look at that issue and the commission took a look at that issue. Um, are we thinking about this the right way? Or are we trying to train folks the old fashioned way and we're just never going to get there, right? That next year will be 1.2 million jobs behind. A couple of years from now will be 1.5 million jobs behind. Do we have the right approach for how it is we're going about training this new generation of talent in a, in a more complex world? So JC spot on. We absolutely have to change how we think about uh, the training and the preparation for job employment of our incoming cybersecurity workforce. So in that regard, the, um, the, uh, um, 
the Microsoft initiative re recently about $20 billion to get it to community colleges is important and, uh, and to get certification programs going is important. In other words, we need to stop relying less on a bachelor's degree and more on the specific certifications you need to be a successful cybersecurity um, uh, employee. And then we also have to figure out how we get them the experience they need because most of the cybersecurity openings aren't at the entry level. They're in the mid-grade and senior level where the people haven't advanced properly with the certifications. So I think the federal government has a role. Private sector has a role. Companies like Microsoft have a role. And I was glad to have a role. And I was glad to see Microsoft stepped up on that. And, and very briefly, um, I want to get your sense on CMMC 2.0. Are you, are you happy with where we are on CMMC 2.0 that the administration is rolling out? A lot, a lot of questions about what it is and what it isn't. But from your standpoint, are we, are we making progress? I defer to Michael Daniel in general on this, so believe him more than you believe me. But if I was yeah. forced to express an opinion, I would say that we'd reached the point in CMMC where we needed CM, CMMC 2.0. But it's unfortunate that we got to that point after this amount of time. So we've lost a lot of opportunity. We got to make up for it. And if it's a bet, if it's a better structured, more functional plan, that I'm for it. Mark, always a pleasure having you on the program. You're always welcome. Thanks so much for taking time to join us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Falcon. And joining us now is Michael Daniel, the president of the Cyber Threat Alliance, the leading nonprofit that seeks to enhance cyber threat information sharing uh, between government and across industry to help improve security. Uh, he's led the alliance since 2017 after spending five years at the White House as former President Obama's cybersecurity coordinator. Before that, he spent nearly 20 years at the Office of Management and Budget, where he oversaw intelligence and national security programming, among other things. Uh, Michael, thanks so very much for joining us again. No, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a, it's an absolute uh, pleasure. This time we're going to talk about a, a report uh, that uh, CTA uh, has uh, assisted in for some time. Every six months, Palo Alto Networks uh, vaunted Unit uh, 42 uh, does a global threat assessment. Uh, the latest one found uh, suspected uh, foreign uh, attacks against uh, nine defense, technology, healthcare, education, and energy uh, organizations. Uh, obviously, uh, this uh, you know you pass this information along to your membership as well, to give them a little bit of a heads up before it became public. Talk to us a little bit about the key findings. What you can really look at when you see this report, right, is that there's a still a broad-based effort on the part of our adversaries to engage in information collection, right? That just because uh, a lot of the focus is on uh, ransomware, right, and what's going on in the criminal space, that you still have sophisticated adversaries that are also carrying out um, espionage and other kinds of activities like that. And so, and trying to maintain their access into government systems and into those industries, uh, partners that are very closely aligned with the government. And so I think what it, you know, the, the real key to my mind in a lot of this research, right, is it shows that you can't take your eye off the ball, if you will, uh, or any one of the balls that are out there for the various threats that we face um, and you know, ex focus exclusively on one type of cyber threat. Are we doing better, right? Each, each one of these uh, reports is an opportunity to also benchmark yourself, right? I mean, if you can measure it, you, you don't know whether you're making progress or not. Are we making measurable progress as somebody who's devoted the last couple of decades of his life to this? really kind of frightening thing to me is that we we actually are making progress, but we're not making progress fast enough. And so what you can see when you look at these kinds of reports is that 
if you compare like if you compare these reports to where we were a decade ago, the level of investment in cybersecurity across the ecosystem has dramatically increased. The amount of attention that's being paid to the issue um, has substantially increased across any sort of metric in terms of implementation of basic security controls, it's increased, but it hasn't increased fast enough to match the advances and what the bad guys have been doing. So unfortunately, we are still falling further behind, um, even despite the investments that we've made. It's great to know that we are improving, but we're not improving fast enough, right? I mean, I think everybody uh, can can say that maybe without uh, as detailed a report, but how does how do reports like this help shape how it is we should respond? Well, when you get reports like this, what it can do is it help, can help focus your attention, right, on the areas that do need uh, that do need work. I think part of it, uh, you know, so uh, I'll give you a very concrete example, which is that in, if you're the chief information security officer of any sort of major enterprise or even a, you know, sort of medium inner, medium to large enterprise, right? You've got a finite set of resources that you can apply. And you, know, you can get through, for example, a certain number of software updates and patches in a given week. And you really want to prioritize your activity against the threats that are most likely to materialize against you, right? Not even just in general across the ecosystem, but the ones that are designed to actually uh, impose a threat on you. And so actually having reports like this can help um, shape the level of activity that are um, where you focus your activity and how you prioritize it. That's really the key thing that these reports do is they highlight where the adversaries are moving, where they might be headed next, and how the, how the defenders can prioritize their activities against those malicious actors. There is a big uh, de- debate, I think one you're all too familiar with, uh, unfortunately, and I, I'm, I'm sorry to laugh because I think it's a little bit absurd, is this sort of sense that these breach, that, that we're somehow helping the adversary by being uh, public and candid about these breaches, uh, as opposed to the only way that we protect ourselves is by having more seamless information sharing about the threat. How do you respond to those people who are just like, oh my God, Michael, you know, you guys are just making this a lot easier for the for the adversary. I, I would say that w- while you might think that that would be the case, and, and I can understand why you might think we're making it easier, we're actually not. The, the bad guys already share all of this information in various ways through the dark web. They're not reliant on these kinds of reports or, you know, open media or, you know, good podcasts like this one. <laughs> that, that's not how they're getting their information, right? They're already sharing these kinds of vulnerabilities and the exploits on the dark web and through their forums and through their information sharing channels. So the only people that we're hurting by not sharing that information are the good guys. The bad guys already have the information. They know what they're doing and they are sharing it broadly. So um, by restricting it and by being too secretive with it, the only people that we're hurting are ourselves, the network defenders and others. So that's why we actually need to do a better job of you know, sharing this kind of information. Now, there are times when sort of how we learn uh, about certain kinds of activity, you might want to actually keep classified and that's okay. And you can do that usually while still releasing some of these kinds of details, like what's in this report um, that you know we've been talking about. You don't have to compromise sources and methods to do that. Right. Um, and, and so I don't really see that as being a fundamental tension. 
Uh, first of all, thanks very much for the kind words about the program. We're, we're equally honored to have you uh, part of it. And I think the reason, uh, thankfully, folks listen to it is that we, we have a, a tendency of having a, a smart folks like you join us. Um, let, me, let me ask a, a, a slightly um, wonky question about forensics, right? I mean, one of the things that we have historically had a challenge with is knowing exactly what was exfiltrated when on a timely basis, right? I mean, normally it's taken months for us to figure something out or it's months after the fact or it's weeks after the fact. It is very rarely in a real-time manner that, that we do this. And as, as often as the case is, you know, over at the Pentagon, we, we find fragmentary bits of information and the forensics of what it is that was compromised and how tends to be a very oblique process. How, how do you think we're doing on that threat diagnostic and the real-time understanding of what's going on in our networks? Because while we are orders of magnitude better than we were, it, it's really kind of a fine art and, and, and we may not, we're still not as good at it as we need to be. I mean, you actually gave a very good summary there, which is that we actually have gotten much better. And certainly the U.S. government uh, brings a lot of forensics tools to, uh, to these sorts of situations. You know, there's just no getting around the fact that um, it takes time to actually go through, uh, if you have a suspected incident, right? It just takes time to go through and do the investigation, to look at the log files, to look at the data that you have, um, and to try to piece together what happened, especially when the adversaries are actually trying to make it hard for you to do that sort of thing, right? Um, but the truth is that, you know, the adversaries are human and that just as with other activities, right? It is very difficult for them to change all of their habits, all of their tools, all of their standard ways of doing business and have something be strictly unique every single time. Like that's really, really hard for a human to do. Um, and it's, you know, it's not efficient, if you will. And so there's almost always telltale signs that you can draw on to, um, you know, to, to figure out and, you know, make uh, attribution, at least to a certain degree uh, of confidence. And so I think actually the technical attribution pieces we have gotten you know, exceptionally good at over the last few years. We had JC Vega, the um, CISO uh, from Devo, join us, um, I think, one or two weeks ago. And one of the things he was concerned about is whether or not we're training talent the right way. Do, do you think that we need to be doing this in a different way? Because he has a compelling case, like every year we're falling behind and now we've got a million cyber jobs to fill. And the number of cyber jobs are increasing, and we're still not addressing the demand even vaguely as quickly as we do. And one of the you know, one of the challenges that he brought up was CISOs have burnout, and if they stay two years in a job, that's a big deal. They tend to quit because it at least gives them a, a chance to take a vacation before they get back into the grind again. Do we need to be thinking differently about how we do this? Yes, I, I would agree with that. I think we definitely need to be thinking differently about how we think about our cybersecurity workforce. Um, for one thing, we need to be automating more of the defensive activities and more of, you know, a lot of what our cybersecurity people end up spending time doing is staring at computer screens, going through alerts, right? And that's not a productive use of human time. We need to start using, you know, machines to surface 
the alerts that we actually need to care about more. But in addition to that, we also need to be thinking about how we employ this workforce, right? And in the medical field, we very much have an idea of triage, right? You don't have your most highly trained surgeons treating, you know, run-of-the-mill common cold patients, right? And there's a triage system where you refer cases that are unusual further and further up the chain to more and more, you know, to additional experts. Whereas the cases that actually turn out to just be, yes, you have a stomach bug, there's really nothing we can do for you, you know, go home and, you know, drink lots of fluid, right? You don't end up tying up the expert's time on that. Um, And so we need to really start thinking about how we have different levels of um, cybersecurity professionals, right? And how we do that same sort of triaging that we do in the medical field uh, and bring the, some of those concepts into the cybersecurity field. And, and let me ask you one, one last uh, brief uh, question, which is uh, where we are on the legislative uh, front. At the top of the show, we heard from Mark Montgomery, uh, the executive director of the Cyberspace uh, uh, Solarium Commission. Uh, from, from your standpoint, where are we making progress? Where are we stalled? And what do we need to be doing better for the lawmakers who are listening to this? Well, sure. I mean, so, so one big piece is that the infrastructure bill that recently passed contains funding for the Office of the National Cyber Director. Um, so that's a big step forward um, to actually get that office with, with funding and get it, um, you know, more resources. Um, but you can also see, you know, there's, there's clearly a desire on the part of Congress to implement some sort of incident reporting legislation, um, which I think would actually be a big step forward. Um, you talked about metrics. Uh, we've been talking about metrics. Well, you know, one of our big problems is we actually don't understand the full scope of how much malicious activity is happening out there. And, you know, if we had an incident reporting requirement, um, we would get a lot better information about the scope and scale of uh, the amount of malicious cyber activity that's actually occurring in our ecosystem which would then give us a better baseline um, to measure against and to view progress against. So I'm very hopeful about about those sorts of things. I also do think that you can see that Congress is really committed to working further on some of the recommendations from the Solarium Commission. So I would expect to see some of those show up in the um, National Defense Authorization Act for this year as well. Michael, uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.